hope you had a chance to share, whether you're an apple orchard person or not. Our family, with our kids were growing up, were big, big apple orchard people. Went to the same place pretty much every year. Uh, have a tradition of going to Pleasant Valley Apple Orchard. Uh, the last few years, we'd kind of fallen apart, but now that we have a granddaughter, we have big plans for the fall to go back to our apple orchard. So, um, important part of our rhythm. If you're not into it, it doesn't, you know, it's not a spiritual thing or anything. But. Well, when I was in my early 30s, um, I was pastoring a church on the north side of the, of the cities in a suburb, and I had come to that church. And in coming to that church, it was a church plant. It's about two years old when I came. And the previous pastor, the founding pastor, uh, had some significant indiscretions and had been removed. And I had followed that person um, to this church and was hired to, to be the next pastor. And the truth is, a lot of the reason that I chose to go to that church to be um, a pastor was because it was in a suburban setting. It had um, very contemporary music. It had drama. It had all these kind of new contemporary things that were going on. And I thought that it was a church that could really, you know, grow fast and become, you know, kind of well-known. And, and probably in many ways, I would not have said this out loud, but I, I was hoping kind of to make a name for myself. Well, about 18 months into... Um, pastoring this church, um, during the interim between myself and the previous pastor, um, there was a real part-time interim person or part-time um, associate person that was made full-time. So when I came, that person had been kind of running things for a, a year, and we had significant personality conflicts, and there were some other things that came up, and then things were. Uh, tense between myself and the board and this person. And so about 18 months into my time there, things had gotten so bad and so tense that we invited some denominational leaders to come in from the outside and to assess what was going on. And so they did this major assessment, met with all kinds of people, even with the congregation, um, and sat down with me and they said, Dale, we think it would be best if you leave. That was their solution. And with those words, I was kind of sent out uh, into a very dark and depressed place, and a, a place of real struggle. I was losing my you know, job. I was losing my um, kind of title as pastor. I was losing what I thought was um, kind of you know, the most important hour of the week, you know, Sundays, preaching, you know, doing the really spiritual stuff, doing the Lord's work. And I had um, some severance from that job, which was helpful. And so I did some counseling and whatever, but I, I was just so, it was so depressing that I didn't really have the energy to look for work. And um, so not too long after that, um, I had to figure out how we were going to make ends meet financially. And I had done construction kind of work and painting work, uh, putting myself through college. And so I ended up getting a job as a painter, uh, painting houses. And for the next um, couple of years, I did that, painted houses. And one of the things that I really struggled with very early on in that process was that it felt to me, at least from kind of my mindset, that I had gone from you know, doing God's work and being involved in what God was doing in the world because I was a pastor and I was working in the church to doing things that really didn't really matter in the world, like painting houses. 
And so during that time, I struggled immensely with what, what, what did my work matter in terms of what I was doing because I was no longer a pastor and I was no longer preaching and I was no longer working in the church. And it was during that time that um, I had a friend who came into my life who we became accountability partners and he began to introduce me um, to some different authors than I'd ever read before. Just had never read any Catholics because in my upbringing you didn't read Catholics because they were not okay. And uh, so he started to introduce me to different people and some different scholars. And it was during this time that I um, uh, was introduced to a person who eventually would write a book in which she talks about something that I found out I was suffering from. And it's what she calls, uh, she coined this phrase from a man named William Shannon, uh, which she, which, who calls this spiritual apartheid. I've got to figure out how to work this thing. We're such a fancy church now. There we go. <laughs> and um, that I had grown up and caught somewhere along the way this idea that my work, because it, it, in painting houses versus being a pastor, was somehow not spiritual work. Uh, that kind of work was secular work. And she talks about this in her book, uh, Transformed into Fire. And I heard her talk about this before she wrote this book. That's how old I am. And um, she says this in her book when she talks about it. She says, the term spiritual apartheid was coined by William Shaman, and it's this mentality that sets God apart from creation. But she goes on and says, apartheid refers to South Africa's former policy of racial segregation. You may remember this. But spiritual apartheid is the belief that God is more present, more active in certain times and places than in others. She goes on to say, we shut out God from our consciousness during these moments that we label as non-spiritual, which constitute the majority of our day. Of course, such decisions are unspoken, but a fluctuating awareness of God, tuning in and out depending upon the setting, keeps us in the grip of spiritual apartheid. And within spiritual apartheid is a profound error about the nature of the kingdom. And that, um, when I first heard her talking about this, um, really hit me because that was my day-to-day -day operation when it came to my work, when it came to my work as a painter. When I was a pastor, I was always inviting Jesus in, talking to Jesus, you know, working, because I had to have Jesus help me do my pastor stuff. But my painting stuff, I figured, well, I can kind of do that without Jesus. And actually, I'm not sure Jesus really cares about this work. I'm not really sure that Jesus is even with me when I'm doing this kind of work. And so during this time, um, I began to get introduced to this idea that, well, maybe I have this problem called spiritual apartheid. But maybe that's not how the kingdom really works. And there's an interesting Jesus story um, that you're probably somewhat familiar with if you've been around the church. On one occasion, Jesus decided he, according to John, had to go through Samaria. The Jews um, avoided Samaria. They were kind of um, distant relatives with the Samaritans, and, but they had gotten into a family feud, and they didn't like to associate with each other. So the Jews like Jesus, would avoid going through Samaria. But Jesus decides he has to go through Samaria. And you probably know this story. He arrives um, at a well in the middle of the day, and it's a hot day, and he needs some water. But it's also lunchtime, so he sends the disciples into town to get food. He sits down at the well and asks a woman who is there for water. And this was 
a radical thing for him to do, to talk to a woman, to talk to a Samaritan woman, to ask her to do something for him, which isn't the kind of the point I want to get into, but there is this radical conversation that begins to happen between Jesus and this woman at the well. And she's struck by this, and she's like, why are you talking to me? And uh, he enters into a conversation with her about a number of topics, but one of the topics that comes up is that she realizes this guy's different somehow, and she even calls him a prophet. She says, you must be a prophet. And in doing that, then she asks him this question. She says, so tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here on Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worship? In this family feud between the Samaritan and the Jews, they had separated, they had taken the Jewish faith and kind of split it into two, and in the kind of pseudo-Jewish faith that they were practicing as Samaritans, they worshiped at Mount Gerizim. And the Jews, the faithful Jews, said the right place to worship is in Jerusalem at the temple, and those Samaritans are doing it wrong, and so they had this feud. And so she's like, this dude's a prophet. Let's find out what he has to say. And you probably know that Jesus says this to them, her. She says, dear woman, believe me, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, or in Jerusalem. The time is coming. Indeed, it is here now, right now. And we often think of Jesus' work of coming into the world and doing his work as being something that really, you know, is, kind of starts at the cross. But Jesus' work actually announcing the kingdom, bringing the kingdom, the expanded power of God into the world in a new way, began with his incarnation. And here he is, and he's standing before this woman, and he's like, right now, from now on, what God is looking for is true worshipers who will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him in that way. And so Jesus is like, you're asking the question, where is the right place to worship? Where is God really at work? Is it in Jerusalem or is it in this mountain? And Jesus is like, neither or both. He kind of like breaks the categories. And Jesus is saying, now that the kingdom is here, with my arrival, the work of God is going on everywhere and all the time. There's not a right place and a right time to worship. Instead, there is a right way to worship, and that right way is in spirit and in truth. And if you look at those words up there, you'll notice that the, in this translation, some translations have the word spirit in capital letters. I think this is actually the more accurate translation. I think it's human spirit and in truth. And you may remember that Jesus said, I am the truth. And so there is this reorienting that happens because the kingdom of God is here. And spiritual apartheid is an enemy to the work of the kingdom because it separates this idea that God is at work and more at work in certain times and places than in other times and places. And so Haugen argues against this, and she says, no, the right kingdom mentality is that God's work, the kingdom of God, the central message of Jesus, is at work anywhere and all the time. But I didn't have that mentality when it came to my painting, because <laughs> I thought God was more at work on Sundays at 11 than on Monday at 8. And I thought God was more at work in a place of worship. God was more at work in my activities of preaching and those kinds of things than in my activities of painting. And so I had this spiritual apartheid, which Jesus says is not actually the way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom is a mindset 
And we're talking this fall about kind of discipleship principles. And for me, one of the central discipleship principles is just the mindset that the kingdom of God, the work of God, broke into the world in Jesus in a way in which this work is no longer contained to a building, a temple. It's no longer contained to certain hours when you're at that building or doing work that is involved with that building. And it's not even contained to certain kinds of activities, but it can spill out and happen anywhere and everywhere. A couple of uh, my favorite quotes around this are um, a poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. And I think this captures a kingdom mentality. She says, Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God. But only those who see take off their shoes. The rest sit around it and pluck back blackberries and dab their natural faces unaware. And I love this like, mentality that she has in this poem that, boy, God is here, always at work, always around us. And the question is, are we looking for God? And God is at work anywhere and everywhere and all the time. And Judy Haugen, in her book, um, she says it this way, every place, every moment is already God-drenched. They could not be more so. And I tend to think that there's certain times and certain places where God's more active and more involved and more drenched. And yet the kingdom mentality of, for us as disciples is that every moment, every place is already God-drenched, and it couldn't even be more so. Well, that mindset shift was a gradual one for me during these two years where I was painting houses and working, and it's been kind of like a relearning process. But one of the pieces that I really struggled with the most, I kind of began to think, okay, well, God's with me when I'm painting. I can talk with God all the time. So God is in every place and every moment. But I really, 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 really struggled with God was, in, was really equally involved in every activity. That my painting was as important to God as my pastoring or later as my professing, you know, as a professor, being a professor. And there's one particular story that has been really helpful for me, and I want to kind of talk about it a little bit also as a second Jesus story and let you talk about it a little bit at your tables too. And this story is one that I've heard talked about a lot. And when it comes to the activities, the spiritual activities, you know, what's spiritual, what's sacred. And a lot of times this story is told in a way in which one person chooses the really spiritual thing and one person chooses the secular thing or the non-Jesus thing. And it's the story of Mary and Martha, and you probably know that story. Jesus comes to, um, to Bethany, which is a town a couple miles outside of Jerusalem. It was a former leper colony, actually. So this town is made up with descendants of lepers, which probably explains why Mary and Martha and Lazarus their parents are never mentioned. It's probably because they had died from leprosy. Well, Jesus comes to this town, and Mary wants to have a meal and, and celebrate him coming. And you probably know this story. Um, when he arrives, um, they come to this village, Bethany, and Martha welcomes them into her home. And her sister, Mary, Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing and so sometimes people are like, well, see, the spiritual activity is sitting at Jesus' feet. And the less spiritual activity, or maybe even the non-spiritual activity, is to be in the kitchen. And this is a juxtaposition of the contemplative spiritual life and the active life, you know. And that the contemplative is really the important thing to be at Jesus' feet. And I'd often heard this story 
taught this way, which would suggest that like being a pastor and preaching and doing those things and being at Jesus' feet, those are the really important stuff, right? Being in the kitchen, that's not really nearly as important. But there's this word in here that I think is the key to this story where the author, Luke, says, but Mary, Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. So at your tables, turn to one person and talk for a moment. What do you think she's distracted from? She's distracted by all the preparations, but what is she being distracted from? So talk at your tables for a minute about that. So what did you talk about? What are some of the things that you think maybe she's distracted from? What's that? Then, when in doubt, always guess God, Bible, or Jesus. Yeah. Jesus. From what Jesus is trying to tell them. Yeah, she's distracted from listening to what Jesus is saying. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So not distracted from what Jesus is saying. Daniel, were you kind of just saying the presence of Jesus? Oh, he's got a conversation. It was Jesus. Okay, that was the sarcasm. Sometimes we make it more complex than Jesus. Yeah. Uh, connection with Jesus, yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. How do we stay connected? Yeah. So communion, Jesus, communion with Jesus, hearing what Jesus is saying, JJ is saying. It's interesting, if you put this in its ancient context, you could fit three homes probably in this room, three first century Bethany homes. And they didn't have walls in the homes, they just had a corner where the kitchen was at and the cooking was happening, but Jesus is in another corner and the disciples are there and Mary's chose to sit at Jesus' feet in order to hear Jesus. And I think what is the key to this story is not that Jesus will in a moment say, to Mary, you know, Mary has chosen the right thing or this one thing and it won't be taken from her after Martha, you know, kind of chides the Lord. She says, Lord, you know, seems unfair that she's not helping. And Jesus says, dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all the details. There's only one thing worth being concerned about and Mary has discovered it and it won't be taken away from her. And I don't think personally, as I read this story, that it's that she chose to sit at Jesus' feet. It's that she chose to stay connected and in communion. And I don't think this story is suggesting that Martha couldn't have been doing that. I think it's just that she was distracted in her preparations. And that for me has become a really helpful mindset when it comes to kingdom life and being a disciple of Jesus, is that our activity is not any different than our inactivity. Our contemplative, if you practice silence and solitude and stillness, beautiful things, a good thing. But in many ways, it should be training us to be able to stay connected with Jesus in our activity and in our work, and all the work matters. And in the kingdom, as a kingdom disciple, I need to live with the mindset that God is at work in everything, all the time, and in every activity. The question is, am I distracted in my activity? Or am I mindful in my activity? Am I fostering communion, I love that word, with God, even in my times of activity, like I foster communion, hopefully, in my times of quiet and solitude and sitting at Jesus' feet?
And so as we think about what it means in terms of discipleship and we think about core discipleship principles, for me at least, one of the most important ones is this idea of constant communion with God in times of reflection and times of sitting at Jesus' feet, but also at times in the kitchen and working with that. Brother Lawrence was a famous person who kind of um, taught, uh, he, he did nothing more spectacular in his life than wash pots and pans in a monastery kitchen. That's all he did his life. But the priests and the others became so amazed at how being around him was like being with Jesus. And so they began to interview him about like what the secret is. And the interviewee says this, it was, Brother Lawrence said, enormous self-deception to believe that the time of prayer, when they would go to the chapel and be quiet, must be different from any other. We are equally bound to be one with God in what we do in times of action as by the time of prayer at its special hour. His prayer, Brother Lawrence's, was simply the presence of God, his soul unconscious of all else but love. And he was the one who actually, Mother Teresa often quotes him, but he was the one who actually said, we must not grow weary in doing little things for the love of God, who looks not at the greatness of the deed, but to the love. And for me, this has become a central um, reshaping of my understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And it was Mother Teresa who said it this way, we all long for heaven where God is, but we have it in our power to be in heaven with God right now, to be happy with God at this very moment. And so living with that kind of posture of constant communion, even in our activities, and not living with spiritual apartheid that my activities are spiritual and yours are not, or yours are and mine are not, but instead it all is a part of the work of the kingdom that Jesus came to announce in the world. And so for me, it's interesting that 25 years later now, I was laid off from a job. And 25 years later now, I'm in a season where I'm doing some handyman work. I've been doing some painting. I'm kind of back in this similar space of where the work that I am doing appears on the surface not to be that terribly spiritual. And on the surface, it doesn't seem like it's nearly as important as what I was doing for 20-some years as a college professor of Bible and theology. I mean, come on. And yet, in this season, I'm trying to celebrate and be mindful of even this activity, like all activities, are an invitation to be with God in that activity and to believe that that is kingdom work, that God is at work in every activity just as much as in any other activity. And even in my painting and even in my handyman work, God is there, and this is kingdom work as we bring beauty into God's world, right? All right. Share a little bit at your tables what stood out for you um, from hearing what you heard today.